This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Built Live Ammo Online podcast presents Daybreak for Monday, May the 25th, thousand and twenty. Travis Ryer, Senior Analyst for BamaOnline.com. It's a special Monday, May the 25th. As we know, it is Memorial Day, and certainly we want to pay tribute to those who made the ultimate sacrifice or who died in the line of service with our armed services uh, on this Monday. And joining me to help do that and a whole lot more is my colleague there at BamaOnline.com, Mr. Charlie Potter. Charlie, I hope you've had a a great holiday weekend to this point. Yeah, I have. And, uh, you know, happy Memorial Day to, to all those out there that uh, has served. I know it's not Veterans Day, but as as the son of a, a former soldier, um, sure. you know, these, these days really resonate. Um, you know, I think we should thank our military every day, but I'm glad we have days, special days set aside to, to remember those who have sacrificed so much and, and really lift up and remember the families that have been affected as well. So what is the uh, what is the weekend, the holiday weekend to this point consisted of for Charlie Potter? Is it just still the nose to the old grindstone, Charlie Potter? Or have you had a chance to come up for air and maybe maybe enjoy some semblance of normalcy, Charlie, as we continue to try to wade through this Corona stuff? Yeah, not too much. Um, you know, the wife and I are still, you know, taking it easy, taking it uh, with a cautious approach with her being a nurse. And we don't really want to yeah. go out and expose ourselves too much. But, you know, it's been a pretty uh, relaxed weekend. And that's what I'll take. Um, you know, we um, we had plans to, to travel quite a bit this summer. We were actually supposed to go to Tokyo uh, earlier this month. We would have gotten back a few days ago. And then yeah. we were supposed to head down to Florida and, and chaperone my niece's uh, senior trip coming up here in a, in a few days. So mm. those are all canceled. So for me, just to be able to kind of chill out, not have a lot to do you know, drink a few beers. That That's a good weekend for me. There you go. There's nothing wrong with any of that. I'm with you. I, I wasn't going as far west as, uh, as Tokyo, but we were supposed to be in Honolulu here in this last week or so. That was going to be an interesting run for us, uh, for you and I, uh, in, in trying to make those trips happen in the month of May. But yeah, kind of went by the boards. The wife and I, uh, we got out this weekend we went down to the uh new orleans area um she decided that we were going to go on a red fishing trip a chartered red fishing trip and so we got out uh yesterday down there in the south of louisiana south of new orleans i had a great chartered trip caught about 10 or 11 red fish uh 10 or 11 catfish a black drum so i'm gonna have to fire that smoker up and, and do my best sort of Zatarans or, you know, New Orleans area type uh, bistro impersonation with that fish. I don't think I'll pull it off quite to the capability that those great folks do. I'll tell you this, though. We've both been to New Orleans a lot, Charlie, Mm -hmm. and it was, we've used the word surreal so much throughout this pandemic, 
but it was another instance of just that. It, it was almost like post-apocalyptic. I guess I said that right. New Orleans. It was just eerily dead in New Orleans. You just can't imagine that, especially on a holiday weekend this time of year. But New Orleans is just getting back, getting into sort of a limited occupancy situation with bars and restaurants. And we talked about this before the podcast. I mean, if you're not going to have conventions in New Orleans, you're not going to have bars and restaurants opened in New Orleans. And even if you do, there's a limited occupancy and you've got a population in New Orleans that is understandably cautious on the heels of what type of hot spot that place was uh, a month or so ago. It, th- th- there's really no reason to go down there. I guess there is if you want to go fishing, which is what we did, but it was just so eer- eerily quiet and silent for New Orleans. That is really hard to imagine because the the times that I've been to New Orleans has been really around football. So either a bowl game or an Alabama mm-hmm. LSU game, or I've been for bachelor parties during the Ooh. summer uh, months. So those times a year, it's always hectic. I mean, most of the time, if you're there for a bowl game, you're there for New Year's Eve and you can't move when you go down to the quarter. So to, to think about going down there and, and seeing no people around, especially like places like Bourbon Street, I can't really wrap my head around that. But I guess it's kind of twofold. So it's either, you know, good job on the people in New Orleans for staying inside and, and staying safe. But it also shows how much that city really relies on tourism. So hopefully, you know, those things can start to coexist again and, and things can get back to normal. They're trying. They're trying. And you're right. The people that we were out and about with and really the city government of New Orleans, they're not giving you much of an option. It's almost pretty much mandated that you wear a mask in public. And, uh, you know, we went to our favorite restaurant in New Orleans, Giacomo's. It's actually in the Carrollton district out of the quarter. And we went Saturday night and they're just, again, getting back to sort of a limited occupancy. And we've been to Giacomo's uh, 10, 12 times probably before. And we were literally the only people in the restaurant. We got there right when it opened because typically you want to be there to try to get a table, yeah. you know, if you can. And even with 25% occupancy on Saturday evening at five o'clock, we had the restaurant to ourselves again, just unimaginable you know, based on previous trips, but that's kind of where we're at. And speaking of all that, we did get some college athletics news on that front on Friday. We sort of anticipated it, Charlie, the NCAA division one council, removes lists the moratorium on organized or you know in-person activities on college campuses the sec follows that up by announcing that it has a reopened sort of date of june the 8th uh again not much of a surprise but at least a step anyway in a direction to a college football season but i guess something i hadn't even thought of before all this, Charlie, is that there's other sports that actually crank up in the fall before college football. So it'll be interesting to see all, how all that plays out, too. Yeah, and I know they initially announced just football and, and men's and women's basketball, but it is good to see the, the NCAA come back around and, and say it's good for all sports. And it sounds like Alabama's going to open it up in phases. And of course, you know, football is going to be first. Um, you know, that's just kind of, you, you would expect nothing less. But 
Um, the, the times that Greg Byrne has spoke and, and when we've heard from Nick Saban too, you know, they've talked about all fall sports. Nick Saban's always a proponent for wanting to see all sports at Alabama be successful. And, um, you know, Greg Byrne's the same way, but he, he really, um, he released a statement and, you know, the talking about how they're going to continue to look at the health and safety and things like that. But he went on to say how the resumption of voluntary in-person activity is an important step, just like you said. It's a step in the right direction in moving towards the fall athletic season, which they are still fully preparing uh, for. And so it's it's good news. There's still a lot of work to do, um, but to get the guys on campus and to get them to be able to work with guys like David Ballou and, and Dr. Ray, um, I think Alabama will take that, and uh, hopefully they get some good news to come. Yeah, again, it'll be interesting, too, because you have other sports. You have soccer. You have volleyball. You have, I believe, cross country mm-hmm. as a part of the track and field program at, at, at collegiate athletic departments around the country. And I want to say soccer, fall soccer is usually the one that gets going first in terms of a season. And, you know, there's fall soccer. um, and then there's a spring soccer season as well, but the fall season is the one in which the the championships are competed for. So it might actually be another sport that gives us a little inkling of where we're headed now, probably not so much in terms of uh, crowds and, and, and fans and attendance and things like that um, with, with soccer or, or volleyball. But um, what's your sort of feeling right now on that topic, Charlie, as far as, what we might be looking at if a season did start today could you see people in the stands charlie could you see it being limited to a certain type of uh, occupancy um capacity or or do you think it'd just be television only at this point i think they would try to limit it and uh, i know both greg byrne and nick saban have um kind of cited the the photos kind of making the rounds of I believe it was 1918 it's a it's a game played at uh, Georgia Tech and uh, it's during the Spanish flu and the stadium's full now granted that stadium is nowhere near the size of what a Bryant Denny is these days but it's a full stadium and everyone has a mask on and we saw with the PSA that Alabama put out with with Saban and uh, Jeff Allen and Big Al they're they're really trying to urge fans to wear masks and kind of make that the the new normal at least for for now and uh, i think masks are are certainly going to be something if fans are in the stadium that's going to be um you know regulated and a necessary move Uh, i also think that if they're going to have fans there it's not going to be a a full stadium and um yeah i think that's maybe what they're looking for the most um that's just me kind of guessing and you know judging by what people have said but uh, i think they want to have fans in the stadium because that's kind of, um, I think, it's a word that Nick Saban uses a lot. It's the spirit of college football. It was what mm-hmm. separates it from from other sports, especially the things like the NFL. I know the NFL has diehard fans, but um, you, know, you have that atmosphere of a Saturday, especially in the South, just how different it is. Now, you, know, you, you talk about bringing fans in and having that, but then you also got to consider tailgating. So I, I don't I don't really know what it holds right now. There's a lot of time between now and uh, that September 12th uh, home game. So we'll have to see. But I know they're looking at everything, every possible avenue. And, and right now with that latest PSA and, and what uh, the AD and head coach have said, I think masks are the, the first step. And we'll see what the stadium looks like if, if fans are even allowed in in this fall. 
Yeah, I mean, the quad could look like Gulf Shores this weekend, for crying out loud. (laughs) I mean, it's like people are already practicing tailgating during a pandemic and seeing some of the crowds that are down along the Gulf of Mexico these days. And, uh, you know, look, some folks are going to heed warnings and take precautions, and some folks are not going to have sort of the same level of concern. but it is going to be fascinating to kind of see how this thing moves forward as we hopefully creep closer to the start of the 2020 college football season. Speaking of college football, when we come back here on Daybreak, part of the Built by Bama online podcast, Charlie and I are going to ask the question, will the Alabama offense surpass 4,000 yards in passing for a third straight season? It's a making the case segment of Daybreak right here on the Built by Bama online podcast right after this. Back with more of Daybreak on this Memorial Day Monday. Travis Ryer and Charlie Potter, as we alluded to just before heading to the break, we are going to get into making the case for the Alabama offense potentially surpassing 4,000 passing yards in a season for a third straight campaign. And Charlie... It's amazing because when you talk about 2018, 2019, you're talking about the two most prolific passing offenses in program history. Alabama before 2018 had never passed for more than 4,000 yards in a season, did it in 2018. Not a surprise given how effective uh, Tua Tonga Bailoa was. You also had a guy like uh, Jalen Hurts as your backup for crying out loud. But I think maybe last year might have been a little bit more of a surprise. If I had told you going into last season, Tua's only going to start nine games and Mac Jones is going to have to start four. And yet this offense is still going to exceed 4,400 passing yards in two fewer games than it had in 2018. What would you have thought of that? possibility come into fruition if I had laid that out for you Charlie I would probably be a little surprised um you know I would ask the question you know if all four of the receivers are healthy because with guys like Jerry Judy and Henry mm-hmm. Ruggs third and Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddle, um you know they just need a guy to get them the football and to get it to them accurately and if if they do they can take um you know a quick slant at the 20 and, and take it 80 yards to the house so you know I, I think there's some caveats and some, um, you know, underlying questions that I would have, but I would be a little surprised just given the fact that the two is, you know, he's the best quarterback in Alabama history. Um, I know a lot of people want to point to, um, you know, former players and, and that's, you know, that's, that's fine. It's, it's a matter of opinion, but when you look at what he's able to do with the football, um, you know, he's just special. And to know that he only started nine games and, uh, one of those starts, um, or actually two of them, he didn't finish uh, because of injury. Then I would be um, worried about them not being able to meet that four thousand yard mark. Now, Max the talented quarterback, he's no more as a passer, so you're not going to get the rushing yards you would get with like a Jalen Hurts. Uh, I think that's the big difference there. I think they could still get close, but I would have been, um, I'd have been concerned uh, just in terms of, of reaching that number, but. You know, it, it shows that Tua was able to rack up a ton of yards when he was in the games. Uh, and then Mac Jones, whenever he was in, I believe he had, um, you know, more than 1,100 yards in just his four starts alone. So mm-hmm. he was able to sling the ball around and get it to those receivers. So, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. But, um, you know, I think that with those two quarterbacks being in the program for three years, 
and being around these receivers, uh, it was possible, but I would, I would have to wonder. Yeah, the last two seasons, Alabama has averaged 40, gosh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,600 passing yards per season and 50 touchdown passes per season to just seven interceptions per season on average in 2018 and 2019. Uh, I guess explosive plays, though, you talked about it, and the potential for them in so many different ways. It's not just a situation where the traditional deep ball was the primary avenue in which they were able to hit on so many explosive plays. You know, over the last two years, they've had, Alabama has had 161 pass plays of 20 yards or more. In 2016 and 2017 combined, Alabama had 94. So sort of pre-Tua and then the Jalen era, when you talk about just, you know, you, you had explosive plays on the ground, thanks in large part to, to Jalen in 2016 and 2017. But just in terms of the passing game, you, you almost doubled your rate from the, the previous two years to the two years that Tua was your, your top option at quarterback. Yeah, and it's just it goes to show his ability to throw players open, and it's a talent that we've talked about a lot, and it's what separates him from other quarterbacks. Um, you know, I'm not saying that, that Jalen can't do that, but two is just special in doing that. And I think Mac Jones showed a little bit of knack for doing it as well. Um, you know, I think Jalen improved as a passer over the course of his career. I think that one year with Dan Enos helped, and then I think he was able to take another step in at Oklahoma. But um, you know, you have two true passers and Tua and Mac Jones and especially the way that Tua was able to get the ball to guys like Judy and and Ruggs and to let them do the work uh it just it meshed really well I mean you had I don't really want to use the phrase lightning in a bottle because Alabama still continues to to recruit talented quarterbacks and receivers but to have that talent at the position with four guys that are probably going to be first round draft picks and then the best quarterback to go through your football program on campus at the same time I mean you were only going to crush the records that you had before. And the thing is, too, it's more impressive. You look at last year, you had a 1,200-yard rusher, Najee Harris. So they're not uh-huh. just completely unbalanced in passing the ball. They've been able to to mix in the run and be impressive in that regard, too. So it just goes to show the step this offense has taken um, in the last couple of years. And a lot of that is in large part due to Tua and these receivers. So much receiving depth. As you said, you could throw it to Najee. You've thrown it to the tight end a couple of years ago and Irv Smith Jr. And that's really, I think, going to be the one of the big questions about whether or not this offense gets to that sort of level for a third straight year is the depth of quality options that you're going to have to work with. I mean, when you have Devontae Smith and Henry Ruggs III and Jerry Judy and Jalen Waddell and uh, Irv Smith Jr. two years ago, I thought Najee helped make, make up for that loss of production with Irv Smith Jr. moving on to the NFL a, a year ago. But you know, I think that's what you got to ask too, right, Charlie? If Even if Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith are everything you think they're going to be in 2020, you still have to have a couple of three guys in that sort of five, 600 to seven, eight, 900 yard range to, to get the numbers to where they've been the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt they're going to need guys to step up and, you know, a guy like John Mechie is going to have to step into that number three receiver role. You're going to have to have guys like Tyrell Shavers or Xavier Williams or Slade Bolden, um, you know, 
finally make a contribution. Maybe a guy like Tredarius Townsend uh, finds a role, um, maybe as a, a running back slash receiver. Uh, maybe one of these freshmen, a guy yeah. like Jones Bell, uh, Javon Baker, uh, Treshawn Holden steps up. But then you're right, you're going to need you're going to need more from the tight end position this year. Uh, I think having a healthy Miller Forstall helps, but you wonder and then you, you kind of project a guy like Jalil Billingsley to take that next step as a receiver. I mean, the, the play he made in the Mississippi State game last year, I believe it was a 19-yard gain, uh, shows some explosiveness, shows some you know uh, flashes of an O.J. Howard or an Irv Smith, and, and they need that. Uh, they brought in Carl Tucker from um, – from North Carolina, but he's more of an inline blocker. I know he can do some things in the receiving game, but you want a guy like Jalil Billingsley to, to take that next step and to be a receiving threat alongside a guy like Miller Forrestal. So yeah, it helps having Najee back, but you're going to need a lot of other guys to step up because we saw what Najee was able to do. I believe last year he led all uh, running backs nationwide in, in receiving touchdowns. So he's a threat in that regard. And I think he can do the same. Maybe a guy like Trey Sanders helps out too, but they're going to need several players to step up and fill the voids left behind by Judy and, and Ruggs. And uh, if they can do that, I think it's possible because, you know, we saw what Matt can do. I think if he is the starter, at least to start the season, uh, because they only have three scholarship quarterbacks, a guy like Bryce Young will be used and have some packages and they're going to try to, you know, continue to improve him and develop him in games. So it, it's an interesting dynamic to see how it'll play out, but you're going to have to have guys to step up and to, to take that next step. Uh, in their development this offseason. Yeah, it's interesting when you start outlining returning personnel because it kind of leads to the question, too, of will this offense really need to throw for 4,000 yards? I don't know if it needed to the last two years, but it just could. <laughs> and you're just not going to find coaches that are going to turn down explosive plays in, in, in a bevy like uh, Alabama was able to produce. You're, you're not going to say, well, you know what? We're, we're making too many explosive plays here. we got to calm this thing down. You're, you're just not going to – if Alabama can hit for the same type of ratio or rate or percentage of explosive plays that it has in 2018 and 2019, Nick Saban's not turning his nose up at that. But this offense, I think, and what we've talked about so far, it pretty much tells you it's going to be built a little differently. And it could be more line of scrimmage-centric then it's been skill position centric the last couple of years. Again, when you combine Najee Harris with those offensive linemen coming back, you bring in a veteran tight end, like you said, and Carl Tucker to help you out in the run game. And even if you didn't have him, you saw a year ago, you're not afraid to turn an offensive guard or a couple of interior linemen into uh, pseudo offensive tackles, I guess. So that's, that may be the biggest question of all, Charlie. Does this, will this offense really need that much from the passing game? I think they'll still want to be balanced, but I think it's a good point and one that um, will be interesting to see how it develops because they do have a lot of experience returning up front. You have four of the five starters, and they have several options to go with with whatever starting five they decide to put out there. They can mix and match a, a few guys there, but you look at what the wide receiver position has been the last couple of years and um, having one of the best receiving quarters in the nation, now – you look at the running back position and what they have stockpiled there, you could really uh, throw out three or four horses and feel good about them. Of course, Najee is going to be the, the lead back and uh, they'll play lean on him like they did last year. But you have Brian Robinson back for his senior year. You have Keelan Robinson back 
who uh, Nick Saban talked about the juice that he brings to that offense. Uh, you add Trey Sanders to that mix after redshirting last year because of an injury, and you have three freshmen coming in. A guy like Jace McClellan's talented. Nick Saban raved over him. Uh, Roy Dale Williams, the, the in-state player, and uh, Kyle Edwards, who's a bruising back. But if you can get these running backs to reel off the big runs that we haven't seen um, the last couple of years, that's big. I know Josh Jacobs provided a lot of explosive plays uh, two years ago, but last year, guys like Najee and Brian Robinson just weren't, you know, reeling off a lot of 20-plus yard runs. If you can get Trey Sanders to to make up for that, or you you create a role for Keelan Robinson where he does that, I think that helps, and it does. I mean that that makes up some of the explosive plays that you lost from from Judy and Ruggs. So. I think that they'll continue to try to be balanced, but the running game might be a little bit more of a focal point because the scale's kind of tipped in that favor in terms of the experience you have at the position. So if you use a 14-game season as kind of a sample size, maybe this team, you know, plays 13 again for the second straight year. Maybe it plays 15 because it advances to the college football playoff national championship game. But we'll just say 14. We'll go in the middle of that. You're talking about, on average, 290 passing yards per game. And from that perspective, who knows, maybe it'll prove to be somewhat similar to a 2018 season. Because, as you said earlier, even if you make the decision in some of these games to go to Bryce Young, if he's not the starter to start the season or doesn't take over as the starter at any point, kind of similar to Tua, in 2018 that doesn't mean the explosive play nature of this offense is going to go away when he comes into games that was a big thing in 2018 like the Vanderbilt game the show that Tua put on uh, in an absolute washout of the Commodores in Nashville so um, 290 I guess doesn't sound all that far-fetched again I I would think it comes back to more of, of the the, the depth at wide receiver and can another legitimate playmaker or two sort of evolve there, evolve there. But when you talk about Mac and you know what he did a year ago, anyway, um, yards per attempt, he wasn't all that far behind Tua or Joe Burrow and some of those guys in the SEC at just under 11. Um, so what do you think? 290 per game in a 14 game season. Can you see that for Alabama in 2020? If you look at the four games that Max started, so Arkansas, uh, Western Carolina, Auburn, and Michigan, uh, he had, what did I say, 1172. Yeah, that's, that's about yards. it. That's 293 yards per game. There you go. So it's, it's definitely realistic. Uh, I agree with you, though. Um, when you, you look at, say, Max the starter, and they're going to want to put Bryce Young in the game, though. With Talia leaving to go to Maryland, sure. Um, you don't have – just a ton of experience at the position. So you're going to have to get that back up ready. We saw last year what would happen when the starter goes down. Uh, it's not good news. You want to have that backup ready. You want to have him comfortable. You want to have him confident. And the only way, or not the only way, but the best way to do that is to get him valuable reps in games. And so uh, whether it's, you know, putting him in in certain situations, having packages for him, or, you know, pulling back early and maybe throwing him out there, I think, you know, Bryce Young is a guy that can can rack up some yards. Um, you know, I don't know you know necessarily what would happen after that, but I think it's it's possible. I think if you you go out there and you let Mac run the offense like he did last year, and you also rely on that running game, two ninety is completely possible. And if they play fourteen games, they'll get there. But 
it's the questions of how much do they rely on the running game? How much does Bryce Young maybe take away? There's a lot of variables there. I could see him being right there at it. You know, I yeah. don't think it's going to be even a year ago at 4,400, certainly not two years ago at 4,854, but I could see him right around 4,000. And, you know, something else you, you figure into this Bryce Young discussion too, assuming that is how it works out and he's coming into games. Um, part of trying to ramp him up is probably going to involve the regular season because he didn't have spring. Right. Mm -hmm. And who knows what fall camp's going to look like in terms of scrimmages and those opportunities. So when you do get him in games, you're going to be playing some catch up probably on Saturdays, aren't you? Yeah, I definitely think so. And that's that's a good point. Now, if if the schedule shortened to obviously only conference games or only power five games, you can probably throw that out the window. But yeah, if, if they get to 15, if, if Alabama gets back to the playoff, they play in the SEC yeah. championship game and play for a national title. I think 4000 uh, you can send that to the bank. But, um, yeah, it, it is interesting to think what they'll do with Bryce Young. And I, I don't think he's um, – yeah, I'm not comparing him to Jalen Hurts or anything like that, but he can also do some things with his legs. Uh, he's, a, he's a dynamic athlete, so you got to factor in that. But I agree. I think that with the time loss in the spring, um, you're going to want to continue to get him those reps, and in-game is the best way to do that. So I think they'll try to do that as well, and, and that's going to help him, and that's going to help them get to that 4,000-yard mark. Yeah, I guess ultimately the biggest question is how much football are we actually going to have in 2020 when we talk about some of these statistical mile markers and the, the viability of, of Alabama being able to, to sort of reach them. But, uh, hey, it's been a lot of fun anyway. Just kind of consider it's football talk, and we've had a little optimism here in the last week, and we hope that continues to be the case and charlie's had a lot of great stuff for us there at BamaOnline.com. a lot of great q a's uh charlie what do you got on tap for us coming up this week yeah last week i did it was kind of quarterback week i talked to jake coker um that was fun to catch up with him and i did a, a feature just trying to see what mac jones was doing and uh he actually worked with his yeah. longtime mentor in tuscaloosa last week and uh, he said that he's at his best right now, and you know, talking about getting to that 4,000-yard mark, that's what you want to hear. But for this week, um, I actually talked to Keith McCants, former All-American and first-round pick, and he has an interesting story because he's went, went through – I think he's experienced the, the highest highs and the lowest lows of a football career. And, uh, you know, he talked a lot about that and gave his thoughts about playing with a guy like Derek Thomas. And, you know, hopefully have a, another, you know, current player look to see what they're doing and – you know, get their level of excitement for being able to get back on campus and, and work with David Ballou and, and Matt Ray again. Yeah, Keith McCants, absolutely. Uh, you talk about trials and tribulations, but a guy who seemingly has weathered much of that, and you go back to the late 80s when you had sort of Derek Thomas and Keith McCants, you had them together, especially in that 1988 season. Really looking forward to for Charlie's piece there on uh, Keith McCants coming up this week. Well, Charlie, have a great rest of your Memorial Day weekend. We'll do this again real soon. All right, man. Always good to catch up. Charlie Potter, Travis Ryer, hoping you have a great rest of your Memorial Day holiday weekend. Keep it locked to BamaOnline.com and the Built by Bama Online podcast, which we would really appreciate it if you haven't already. Subscribe to the podcast, Built by Bama Online podcast. 
Also, leave us a rating and a review while you're there. If you don't mind, we would greatly appreciate it. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in to the Built by Bama online podcast.